Okay, buckle up. We're going to talk about discovery. So in this, we will talk about discoverable information, depositions, electronically stored information, um, signing disclosures and sanctions for improper certification, and attorney work product doctrine. So buckle up. Let's get started with discoverable information with that whole relevant and proportional standard. So a party in a lawsuit may obtain discovery of all non-privileged information that is one, relevant to any party's claim or defense, and two, proportional to the needs of the case. Information within the scope of discovery need not be admissible in evidence to be discoverable. Proportionality, so the second prong here, proportionality is determined by considering one, the importance of the issues at stake in the action, two, the amount in controversy, three, the party's relative access to relevant information, four, the party's resources, five, the importance of the discovery in resolving the issues, and six, whether the burden or expense of the proposed discovery outweighs its likely benefit. When discovery is resisted for reasons related to confidentiality or privacy, the court must balance the interest of the party seeking disclosure against the interest of the party resisting disclosure. In such a situation, a court has discretion to limit the scope of discovery in order order an in-camera review of documents to determine if they contain sensitive information or order discovery subject to a confidentiality order. Personnel records that have been held, personal records have been held to be discoverable. Sorry about that, a little flub. Um, once a person reasonably anticipates litigation, that person has a duty to preserve all relevant evidence and cannot destroy the same, even if litigation has not yet been commenced. Federal courts have the inherent power to sanction parties for any abuse of the judicial process, including destroying or failing to preserve relevant evidence. Moving on, let's talk about depositions. So a party is permitted to conduct up to 10 depositions. Without leave of a court, um, a party is permitted to conduct a deposition of any person or party so long as the deposition is one, limited to one day of no more than seven hours, and two, proper notice is given. Unless the parties have stipulated otherwise, a party must obtain leave of the court, one, to take more than 10 depositions, two, if the person has already been deposed, or three, if it is seeking a deposition before the parties, quote, meet and confer. When we talk about meet and confer here, we are, of course, referring to the Rule 26F conference. An entity, such as a corporation, must designate a person to represent it for a deposition, and they designate different people to testify on different topics. So let's talk about the notice requirement here. So, a party who wants to depose, oh, sorry, yawning. A party who wants to depose a person by oral questions must give reasonable written notice to every party in the action. The notice must state the time and place of the deposition and the deponent's name and address if known. If the name is unknown, the notice must provide a general description sufficient to identify the person or the particular class or group of persons to which the person belongs. A subpoena is not required to depose an opposing party. A party may be subject to sanctions for failing to appear, failing to provide the deponent for deposition, even if the party is beyond the court's subpoena power. So moving on, let's talk about electronically stored information and spoilation sanctions. So first off, electronically stored information. 
A party in a lawsuit may obtain discovery to all non-profligate information that is one relevant to any party's uh, claim or defense and proportional to the needs of the party uh, case. So that's the base rule that we talked about before. Um, all of this information also includes electronically stored information such as emails, text, or digital files. When a party reasonably anticipates litigation, it must take reasonable steps to preserve the information, such as to suspend its routine document retention slash destruction policy and put it put in place a litigation hold to ensure the preservation of relevant documents. For the duty to preserve to apply, the future litigation must be probable, meaning it must be more than a mere possibility. The duty to preserve may be triggered by pre-litigation correspondence, such as a preservation letter, notice of a claim or demand, oral request, or even prior experience with events that usually lead to litigation. So let's say that this information has been destroyed um, for whatever reason. A party may be sanctioned under Rule 37E for failing to preserve electronically stored information only if the electronically stored information should have been preserved in the anticipation of litigation, the party failed to take reasonable steps to preserve it, and it cannot be restored or replaced through additional discovery. Only when all three elements are met, the rule is applicable. If Rule 37E applies, then the court may order measures no greater than necessary to cure the prejudice to a party, or if the party acted intentionally in deleting this information, the court may, one, presume that the lost information was unfavorable to the party that destroyed it, two, instruct the jury that it may or must presume that the information was unfavorable to the party, three, dismiss the action, or four, enter a default judgment. However, let's, you know, entering a default judgment is an extreme remedy rarely used by courts, especially when the prejudice may be cured by an adverse inference security instruction or some other applicable sanction. So, moving on. Sorry, I'm yawning. Long day. So let's talk about Rule 26G, signing disclosures and and sanctions for improper certification. So under Rule 26G, all discovery papers served in the litigation, such as discovery requests, responses, objections, or disclosure, must be signed by an attorney of record or by a party personally if the party is unrepresented. When signing any disclosure, the party must certify that it is complete and correct at the time it was made. When signing any other discovery document, the party must certify that it is consistent with the rules of federal civil procedure and is non-frivolous, that it's not being presented for any improper purpose, such as, like we said before, to harass, cause unnecessary delay, or needlessly increase the cost of litigation, and three, is not unreasonable, unduly burdensome, or unduly expensive considering the case, issues at stake, and prior discovery. The court, by motion or on its own, may issue sanctions against an attorney, law firm, or party for failing to comply with Rule 26G. If a person violates this rule without substantial justification, the court must impose an appropriate sanction which includes ordering the violating party or attorney to pay reasonable expenses, including attorney fees that are caused by the violation. All right, so those are signing disclosures. Let's talk about initial disclosures in discovery. 
So without awaiting a discovery request, this is, you know, when you're entering into discovery. So without awaiting a discovery request, a party must provide the following initial disclosure to other parties. One, the contact information of individuals likely to have discoverable information and the information they are likely to have. Two, a copy or description of all documents, electronically stored information, and tangible things that the party may use to support its claims or defenses, unless the use would be solely for impeachment. Three, computation of each category of damages claimed by the disclosing party. And four, any insurance agreement that may be liable to satisfy a possible judgment in the action. The above disclosures must be made within 14 days after the Rule 26F conference between parties. If a party fails to provide any of the above disclosures, that party is not allowed to use that witness or information on a motion, at a hearing, or at a trial unless the failure was substantially justified or is harmless. So finally, let's end this with talking about attorney work product doctrine. So a party in a lawsuit may obtain discovery of all non-privileged information that is one, relevant to any party's claim or defense and two, proportional to the needs of the case. Remember, this is the case with the discovery, relevance, proportionality. Um, however, attorney work product doctrine protects all materials that are prepared by an attorney or his agents in anticipation of or during litigation. Such parties are protected from disclosure unless a party can show that one, a substantial need for the materials exists, and two, a substantial equivalent of materials cannot be obtained without undue hardship. So an insurance company's investigative, investigative report of an insured's claim is generally not considered to have been prepared in anticipation of litigation because it is, it is not prepared in response to a threat of immediate litigation. When a party claims that requested information is protected by work product doctrine, the party must disclose the existence of the material in sufficient detail to enable other parties to access the claim of privilege. This is known as a privilege log. Um, remember though, this is like a pretty limited, it's just whatever the attorney produces for litigation. So, um, you know, like an attorney's notes or something like that. It's not used for pre-existing documents that existed before the litigation. Okay, so that's it for all discovery things. Next, we will move on to pre-trial conferences and uh, motions, I believe. Yeah, I don't know if that'll be one or two episodes. We'll see. <laughs>